The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Caleb Benjamin, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for September 16th, 2023. This week, the Biden administration notified Congress it has proceeded with a prisoner exchange with Iran. Under the agreement, the administration is giving Tehran access to $6 billion the U.S. had frozen through sanctions and will free five Iranians under detention in the U.S. In exchange, Iran will release five Americans. Meanwhile, talk about a U.S.-brokered Israel-Saudi deal continues to swirl around Washington as the Biden administration pursues what could be a historic change in the Middle East. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from February 19, 2021, in which David Priest sat down with Norman Rule, Kirsten Frontrose, and Ambassador Dennis Ross to discuss the then-new Biden administration's promise to significantly change the U.S. relationship with Iran and how such a change might affect the rest of the Middle East as well as the U.S.'s role in the region. First option, the U.S. agrees to bend first. We agree to roll back nuclear-related sanctions, nuclear-related only sanctions instituted in the past four years, and to enter into a renewed JCPOA that deals solely with the nuclear issue. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 16th, 2021. The Biden administration has promised significant changes to the U.S. relationship with Iran that could have a market impact on the Middle East. What is the likelihood this new administration will be successful? And how will other regional developments, from the Abraham Accords between Israel and a few Arab states, to the healing of the rift within the Gulf Cooperation Council, to the ongoing morass in Syria, affect the dynamics here? To address it all, last week I virtually hosted for the Michael V. Hayden Center for Intelligence, Policy, and International Security at George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government, a panel featuring, first, Norm Rule, a 34-year veteran of the CIA who served as National Intelligence Manager for Iran for more than eight years, second, Kirsten Fontenrose, formerly Senior Director for the Persian Gulf on the National Security Council staff and now Director of the Scowcroft Middle East Security Initiative at the Atlantic Council, and third, Ambassador Dennis Ross, who has served in U.S. government positions pertaining to the Middle East for some 40 years and for some half-dozen administrations, who's now a distinguished fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. It was a long virtual event. We have edited the audio for length. 
It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 16th. Iran, the U.S., and the Middle East at a turning point. Let's start with you, Norm. You followed Iran more intensely and more closely than perhaps anyone other than the senior most intelligence analysts for some 20 years. So let's pretend you're still the national intelligence manager for Iran, but in an unclassified setting. And you've gotten together with a few hundred of your closest policymaker friends. And we've asked you to provide a short, high-level overview of Iran to get us all on the same page to start this discussion. How do you see Iran's political and economic situation, its nuclear and military status, and how does that inform Iran's view of the world and of the new Biden administration? Let me just provide a few minutes of wave tops on Iran's political and economic uh, security, how it sees its diplomatic environment and the status of its uh, regional adventurism, uh, and also where its nuclear program uh, lays at present. I think to begin with, it's important to recognize that Iran is confronting a series of unprecedented and near simultaneous economic, demographic, political, and social uh, crises for which it has no policy solution. The choices of the Islamic uh, Republic's leadership and the nature of their own governance denies them a process to produce the policy responses to many of their problems. And the uh, international sanctions and the COVID uh, situation has denied them the funds to come up with temporary solution. The regime recognizes that it confronts broad dissatisfaction in all of the unrest in the country. The population has shown unhappiness with the entire spectrum of Iran's leadership. So there is no one element of Iran that appears to be attractive to uh, the majority of the population. At the same time, there is no evidence that the Iranian government will collapse in the near term and perhaps early midterm. The opposition is leaderless, rudderless, lacks cohesion to labor elements. Security forces are, or at least appear relatively well-resourced, cohesive, and willing to use the most extreme and lethal force. However, the DNA of Iran's leadership is about to undergo some significant changes due to three impending social and uh, leadership inflection points. The revolutionary generation is dying off. Uh, the new generation, the rising generation of Iran's leadership has had no experience with the revolution uh, firsthand, but they've been shaped by the Iran-Iraq war and by the last two decades in particular of Iran's defiance and experiences uh, in the region with sanctions and with the West. Uh, this new leadership will be more likely to engage the West, but we should not be deluded. It will be no less assertive and uh, would likely will likely pursue policies that are a little different from those pursued by the Islamic regime. Iran will have elections for a new president on, July, on June 18th. The election is free, but it will not be fair. All of the candidates will have been screened and selected by Iran's hardline leadership. Uh, Iran's population is, in essence, playing with a fixed deck by their own, their own leaders. Unless the decision-making architecture of the regime radically changes, the new president, like his predecessors, will have little, if any, influence on the issues we care most about, uh, Iran's nuclear missile terrorist and regional activities. The foreign minister will also have little influence and will be tasked with fracturing multilateral coalitions against Iran, protecting hardline interests through diplomacy from Western sanctions and whitewashing regime actions. 
Finally, Iran is approaching the time when it will receive a new supreme leader. Current supreme leader is reportedly in ill health. He's 81 years old. However, he has hardlined, or I'm sorry, he has cemented a selection architecture to ensure that his successor uh, will be uh, cut from the same hardline cloth. And this individual is most likely to be uh, the 60-year-old current head of the judiciary, Ibrahim Raisi, which will leave a generation of leadership in Iran by a hardliner. Moving to the economy, the economy is poor. Iran has a population of about 84 million. Its economy is about the size of Maryland, GDP of about $440 million, billion dollars last year. To give you some comparison of what that means, Saudi Arabia has a population of about 30 million, a third of which are expatriates. Its GDP was twice that of Iran. France, which has a population of about 67, 68 million, has a GDP eight times that of Iran. So it's not a very robust economy. It faces significant inflation, which is about 46% uh, right now. It's real, uh, mainly through sanctions. As a result of sanctions, has uh, deteriorated significantly, depreciating 49% in the last year. Uh, and most importantly, Iran's uh, accessible reserves, according to the IMF, are about eight or $9 billion by the end of 2020, which means the regime is if facing an inevitable balance of payments crisis, which will uh, make the infusion of hard uh, currency the main financial priority of Iran in any negotiations. I should also note that Iran has shown signs of preparing to expand its uh, oil production and will likely aim to produce 2.3 million barrels a day by the end of the year. So how does Iran see its diplomatic environment? Generally favorable in the near term. There is little risk of multilateral diplomatic or, or economic pressure coming against it. There is little, if no risk, of an actual conventional conflict instigated by the United States that would overthrow the regime. Iran's Arab neighbors are disunited in how they feel they should approach Iran in the region, particularly Iran's actions in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, and Lebanon. Uh, Europe, which has never been enthusiastic about non-economic coercion against Iran since 1979, um, is no more enthusiastic at present and is consumed with uh, dealing with COVID and economic issues. Russia and China have consistently blocked any censure of Iran uh, at the United United Nations Security Council, to the extent that I think a fair case can be made that collective security is at its lowest ebb uh, because of how the UN Security Council has not responded to these actions. So, of course, the U.S. Well, the U.S. is focused on pandemic challenges, domestic, social, and economic issues, and restoring the traditional U.S. relationship with multinational partners. Current senior U.S. officials, the Iranians know, have stated their public support for a return to the nuclear deal when Iran is in compliance and have repeat routinely criticized the maximum pressure campaign of their predecessor. The Biden administration has also voiced its intention to strengthen the 2015 nuclear deal to follow it on missile and uh, regional discussions, but it's unclear what uh, inducements it can offer to empower Iran to make con meaningful concessions on either of these issues once the deal is restored. And this is unsettled regional partners who continue to see Iran as a country that routinely threatens their citizens um, on a daily basis through terrorism, missile shots, drone shots, and uh, other attacks. So this leaves the question of how best Iran can negotiate in the near term so that it can uh, obtain maximum advantage over the United States or leverage in negotiations. So how is Iran doing regionally? Well, the good news for the Quds Force, which in essence conducts Iran's foreign policy in the near abroad, 
is that um, there was no threat of a significant international effort that would seriously push Iran out of the region. And indeed, Martin Griffith, the UN envoy for Yemen, recently made a trip to Tehran, I believe his first, to discuss Yemen. And that is a victory for Iran. Until the post-Arab Spring world, Iran's last significant venture into Yemen was probably 660 AD. And Yemen for Iran is a new world of possibilities. And this engagement shows a recognition by the UN that Iran is a player. There's bad news to the Quds Force. Uh, maximum pressure, whatever your views are on this um, policy, had a serious impact on Iran's resources for its proxies. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars did not reach Iran's proxies. And again, whatever your views are on maximum pressure, that weakened their ability to kill Americans and other people abroad. The Quds Force will look for a return to the nuclear deal to restore the flow of money in part so that it can restore this financial uh, aid to its proxies. Iran also has bad news that its proxies overseas have little attraction in governance. Uh, Iran can export thugs, it can export militias who maintain power through uh, their weapons and violence, but Iran can't export the good, any good governance any more than it can manage good governance on its own. Its foreign minister, its foreign minister likely views uh, the near term um, in a positive way. He's confident probably that he can use negotiations to prevent international coalitions from forming, but also to protect IRGC equities. The foreign minister's role is in part is to uh, ensure that the IRGC has time to build facts on the ground. Javed Zarif did this with some effectiveness when he was engaged on Syria. The GCC states are uncertain what, how their engagement with Iran will, will go, uh, how it will play out. Uh, it's been suggested by the Biden administration that they have a regional engagement with Iran, but they have raised questions such as, does this mean engaging with the foreign ministry or engaging with the Quds Force? And finally, on the issues of de-escalation, regional states ask reasonably, what are they supposed to stop doing in the face of Iran's attacks? Finally, just a few comments on Iran's um, nuclear program and the nuclear deal. There is no evidence that has been issued by anyone that Iran is undertaking a covert weaponization program, period. However, the nuclear cash that was seized in the audacious and extraordinary intelligence operation by Israel provided very strong evidence that Iran sought to at least maintain the possibility of a weaponization program in the future. And that should not be ignored. Iran could have destroyed that material. It chose not to. That cash was not just how to build a weapon, but how to avoid mistakes that would slow the construct of a weapon. It's easy to understand with that why policy questions, including Iran and the Gulf, are so hard. Let me turn to you, Kirsten. Let's jump right into that. How is it that the status of Iran and the balance of successes and failures of the so-called maximum pressure policy have influenced the maneuvering room for U.S. policy in the Gulf region. Here is what's made U.S. objectives vis-a-vis -vis Iran and the Middle East more difficult and a little bit easier. We'll get into those as well over the past four years, starting with the difficulties. Number one, Iran has birthed additional proxies since 2015, the most recent of which we believe is the True Promise Brigades that claim responsibility for attacks in Riyadh the first week of January. Number two, the pace of cyber and disinformation activity has picked up by both our partners and our adversaries in the region, often against the interests of U.S. objectives. 
Uh, Iran is continually making cyber plans to disrupt government and private networks in the US and allied nations. And Saudi Arabia and the UAE do not want to see a new JCPOA, and they release propaganda aimed at re reducing support for New Deal. Number three, perceptions of U.S. disengagement from the region mean that our leverage is reduced and adversaries like Russia especially exploit this unwillingness of the U.S. to enter into more kinetic sh uh, showdowns in the Gulf, saying that the U.S. is no longer willing to prioritize Gulf security. Russia even floated a proposal competing with the Middle East Strategic Alliance that featured Russia as the security guarantor in the Gulf. China is eagerly proposing itself as a replacement vendor of key defense platforms as well. So what has made the pursuit of US objectives harder as of the, as of the past few weeks? So we've talked about what the former administration did that may have made things a little tough and, and what the region responded that may have made it tough. Now, what are we facing just within the last few weeks that may make it tough? One, concerns in the Gulf and in Israel about a new JCPOA increase the likelihood that these partners of ours will plan unilateral or combined actions against Iran going forward that we may or may not be read in on, and that could potentially derail U.S. attempts at negotiations with Iran about new deals of any sort. And number two, we now have decreased leverage with the Houthis, and this dynamic is not only important in the context of Yemen, but it presents a model that all 50 plus of Iran's affiliated militias around the world are watching. Now let's turn to events in the past four years that open up room for progress on US goals in the region. So the bright side, one, the Abraham Accords. These accords will make coalition building easier. It will leapfrog DOD's ability to pursue interoperability with partners in the region and to begin expanded military exercises. And Kirsten, can you dig down a little bit into those Abraham Accords and explain the relationships that you're talking about there? Sure. So the Abraham Accords, if you're not tracking those very closely, are a set of agreements between Israel and Arab uh, Muslim countries predominantly that normalize relations. So when we talk about Arab-Israeli peace, we're always talking either about Israeli-Palestinian peace or about Israeli peace with the rest of the Arab world. And that's what the Abraham Accords have looked at. How do we create normalized relationships, economic, political, social, and people to people between Israel and its neighbors in the region beyond the Palestinian peace process question, which is entirely separate. It has been related, but requires an entirely separate solution set. The Abraham Accords look at the broader region. So it began with the UAE, it expanded to Bahrain, to Sudan, Morocco, and this administration has said they intend to fully encourage the expansion of countries that are involved in the Abraham Accords. So like I mentioned, it does do quite a few things that are in the US interests, not only in terms of security with things like making it easier for DOD to work on interoperability and military exercises. It also reduces the burden on the US to be the external provider of security as these countries can do something to plus up one another's capabilities. It also facilitates long-term stability by normalizing peace at that people-to-people -people level. You know, we always worry about the further radicalization of these populations against one another as generations go on. We're hoping this will um, stop that and, uh, and roll that back a little bit. And it will contribute to the stability of energy markets as more efficient networks for energy flow and trade are built where it was previously not geopolitically possible. So a second thing that's made it easier is the resolution of the Gulf Rift. This will also assist with US goals in the region. This resolution, while many of us are a little bit cynical about what it really means, um, we still see the disinformation war ongoing, we still see the rift bearing out in places like Somalia and Libya, but what it does do for the U.S. is give us the potential to work with and through a reunified GCC, 
which already has multilateral directives and committees in place that can cut the red tape involved in starting from scratch with each country individually in the absence of a functioning GCC as we've had to do over the past several years. It also facilitates US regional military exercises, which have frankly been a royal pain in the rump to pull off during the rift. And it eases the flow of commerce by making the work of multinational corporations easier, which is good for the US economy and makes the Hill happy. So it's something that should be should ease the way for the administration. And then the third thing that could make progress on US goals a little bit easier is socialization of the idea of a regional security architecture. Discussions about what we called a Middle East strategic alliance got the region thinking about the benefits in the long-term in devising region-wide strategic missile defense, cyber defense, counterterrorism strategies, stabilization, funding, synchronization, and even now pandemic response. So a new administration in Europe could leverage this kick-started thinking in the region and build on it, and frankly, be better, because Russia and Iran have picked up on it, and they are proposing competing models for regional security architecture. Uh, and in these models, as you can imagine, the U.S. is not at the table. And then I would say fourth, the this is kind of a double-edged sword. So that fear of U.S. disengagement from the region that we mentioned as making U.S. objectives harder has also given us two levers that can make two specific goals easier. One is it has inspired the, the Emiratis and the Saudis to think about taking their own steps at de-escalation with Iran. The U.S. can encourage these steps and frankly will benefit from them. And then two, burden sharing. The Middle East called our bluff for years, assuming that despite rhetoric from multiple administrations about the need to reduce U.S. resources dedicated to the region, we wouldn't do it. And the past four years has proven that the U.S. can in fact draw down. This kind of new understanding in the region, this little wake up call can be leveraged to seek more from our Middle East partners in the way of, of, of burden sharing, whether in terms of things like taking responsibility for resolving conflicts or for contributing financially or technically to stabilization of their neighbors. So where does that leave us with you when you take the Iran information we now have from Norm and you take this regional framing, what are some of our policy options with regard to Iran? What can we do uh, looking forward? As any good civil servant would do, I will present you with three options. We are at an impasse right now, currently today, like we were months ago with the Macron plan. Who will bend first? We have to get around this impasse if we want a deal. So I would present these three potential courses of action for our discussion and debate and, and your thoughts. First option, the U.S. agrees to bend first. We agree to roll back nuclear-related sanctions, nuclear-related only sanctions instituted in the past four years, and to enter into a renewed JCPOA that deals solely with the nuclear issue. If, and only if, this renewed agreement contains a clause that says these sanctions will snap back in a year if a second and separate parallel agreement on Iran's proxy and missile programs is not finalized. And note, finalized not being at the table. Being at the table for talks in a year would not be sufficient for this option because that is precisely the sweet spot Tehran is aiming for and will drag out indefinitely if allowed, as Norm alluded to. An agreement must be in place with plans for monitoring. A second option, ask Kuwait to intermediate between Saudi Arabia and Iran to arrive at a pact of mutual non-aggression, which would reduce justification by both parties for pursuing nuclear activity. And we've seen indications that Kuwait is offering up their good offices for this and that it may be getting some traction. This would also lessen the burden on the U.S. to defend the Gulf against Iranian aggression and would reduce the likelihood of war breaking out in the Gulf. 
Iran might even be willing to give up Yemen for this agreement with Saudi. In other words, stop providing support to the Houthis. They don't need them now anyway, since they have the true promise brigades, but we can talk about that if you're interested. If Iran and Saudi agree to something like this non-aggression pact, then Biden's team could make sanctions rollback a goodwill gesture in recognition of this move toward regional peace. The third option, go for a nuclear deal without raising the issue of Iran's policies that destabilize the region, but express the expectation that this agreement will be pursued immediately upon the signing of a nuclear deal. This is where we are headed now. This would infuriate the Gulf and Israel, our partners, but it would make Iran very happy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Gulf region, of course, and the Arabian Peninsula that you have briefed on so well sits within the wider Middle East. Dennis, you haven't just studied the Middle East for 40 some years. You have been a key player in the events of the Middle East in the last four decades. What are the core fundamental things across those decades that are persistent and that remain and that US policy must acknowledge? And what are the things that you have seen as the key variables, especially in the last few years that open up opportunities that link together Iran, the Gulf, and the wider Middle East region to try to achieve some progress for U.S. goals. When we look at this region, our policy didn't just begin yesterday. It didn't start with the last administration. There's been a kind of continuity to it for a very long period of time. We had a set of options or interests in the region that revolved you know, historically around oil, trying to promote peace, Counterterrorism and terrorism became a major part of this. Nonproliferation was also another preoccupation that we've seen over the years. The way I want to attack your question is maybe a little bit differently. And yet I'll reveal, I'll, I'll come uh, in a sense to where you want me to end up anyway. Or at least you'll decide if I come to where you wanted me to end up anyway. You know, it's interesting. You go back to 1981 uh, and Alexander Haig, the Secretary of State in the Reagan administration, declared that there was a new strategic alignment in the region. He said the Israelis and the Arabs had a common interest against the Soviet threat uh, and the Iranian threat. After all, the Iranian revolution had taken place two years before, and he was describing there's a strategic realignment in the region. It may have existed in, uh, in his theory because of this convergence of, of common threat perception, but the reality was at that point, 
the Arabs weren't prepared to look at Israel as the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Part of the reason was that you had Iraq under Saddam Hussein, who made a determined effort not only to isolate Egypt because it made peace with Israel, but also to preserve this image of confrontation with Israel. Saddam Hussein held and uh, organized the, the Baghdad summit, which was designed not only to drum Egypt sort of out of the Arab consensus, out of the Arab world, move the Arab League offices out of Cairo, but also to provide a lot of money to the confrontation states. The Saudis were a supporter of this. So the notion that this convergence of interest was something that you could develop at that point was belied by the realities in the region. That didn't mean, by the way, that Hague was wrong. The Saudis and others in the region did see Iran as a threat, and they did see the Soviets uh, as a threat, but they weren't prepared to orient their policies in a way that Hague was suggesting. They still looked to the United States, but in truth, throughout, you know, you had a war between Iraq and Iran, and you had the key Arab states then supporting uh, the Iraqis. By the way, the Reagan administration tilted towards Iraq in that war. Uh, it provided TPQ radars, which were force multipliers. It provided uh, agricultural credits. It also ended up reflagging ships uh, as a way of contending with the threat that the Iranians were posing to the oil trade at that point. So we tilted in that direction, and the Iraqis were sort of the focal point of, of fighting the Iranians. The beginning of a change in the region, interestingly enough, does begin during the Gulf War. I recall at the time having been with Baker on all of his trips as we organized what was a coalition, international coalition, but also a coalition within the region. One of the things I recall being struck by is that many of the Arab leaders said, look, at least the Israelis seem to recognize what's important to us. They weren't necessarily prepared to make greater leaps, but we did have the Madrid conference. We did launch a multilateral negotiating process at the same time. And we, we began to have contact and, in a sense, formal discussions for the first time between the Israelis and Arab states, at least in that multilateral setting. When Oslo took place, that also created more of a justification for more Arab leaderships to begin to engage with the Israelis. Again, most of the time it was below the radar screen, but that didn't change the reality. I would hear often, if the PLO can deal with the Israelis, so can we. And I can tell you, I presided over many private meetings between the Israelis and a very wide range of Arab states that did not have uh, relationships with the Israelis. And what's interesting is, go to the Arab Peace Initiative in 2002, as I give you this historical overview, and I will get to your, your key point about what's new and different, and it will pick up on what Kirsten was saying. Uh, in 2002, you had the Arab Peace Initiative, and it created a formula. It was a new, interesting formula, at least at one level. It basically, promised that there would be full diplomatic relations with Israel after Israel withdrew to the June 467 lines, both vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Palestinians, but also vis-a-vis -vis Syria. Now, I want you to think about that formula. That formula was basically to Israel, you solve the Palestinian problem, and once you solve the Palestinian problem, then we will make peace with you. What the Abraham Accords represent is the exact opposite of that. It's not that the Palestinian issue has been forgotten. It's not that the cause of Palestine is somehow no longer one that exists, but it's saying basically we Arabs, the four Arab states that have now crossed that threshold and made peace with Israel, they're saying our national interests come first. Our priority is what is important to us. 
uh, and the significance of what the UA did, because they really led the way, uh, is they went to the, to the Trump administration and said, we can offer you a win-win-win. A win for you, because this will be the first peace agreement uh, since 1994, when Israel and Jordan made peace. A win for the Israelis, because it'll be the first peace agreement since 1994. And, and by the way, I should just note, when the Israeli public, even though Prime Minister Netanyahu had said that he was going to annex the territories allotted to Israel under the Trump peace plan, uh, it was interesting that when the Trump administration said, you can't go ahead with annexation because there's going to be a peace agreement, 80% of the Israeli public, when given the choice between annexation or normalization, 80% said, we choose normalization. And a win for the Emiratis from two standpoints. One, they have been developing relations with the Israelis since at least 2008, 2009. They began to go public with those relations in 2015. They allowed the Israelis to establish a diplomatic presence in the International Renewable Energy Agency in Abu Dhabi. They began to invite Israelis to come. They were going, before COVID, they were going to have an, allow an Israeli pavilion uh, in the 2020 Expo in Dubai. So they were close to normalization, but they hadn't crossed the threshold. So they crossed the threshold they saw enormous benefits. What's interesting about this, and I want to underscore this, in a over decade of period in which the UAE was developing relations with Israel, the starting point was security. And this was true for almost every other Arab leadership that was doing things with the Israelis below the radar screen. The focal point was on security. What Haig had said about converging threat perceptions was right, but you couldn't act on it given the, in a sense, the landscape of the region. But the landscape changed in the region. Uh, and increasingly, working with the Israelis, at least privately, became something that made much more sense in terms of meeting common security needs and recognizing what the Israelis could offer. But what we've also seen is, especially because of COVID, but even prior to that, an increasing recognition that what the Israelis offer in the economic areas, in the high-tech areas, in terms of digitalizing your economies, in cyber, go well beyond just the security dimension. When it comes to water security, when it comes to food security, what the Israelis offer meet needs of increasing numbers of Arab states. And when you look at the effects of climate change and drought in the region, these become much more acute problems for many of the, the countries in the region that need to deal with it. So what we're seeing right now is a very different kind of landscape. Kirsten talked about this being a very important coalition. Any strategy for countering the Iranians has to start also with recognizing the more you push normalization, the more you're actually competing with the Iranians. You know, I would just pick up and say, pick, uh, I would add to what Kirsten is saying, this is one element of a strategy for competing with the Iranians. This is, to answer your question, this is what's different in the region. And I wanna, let me sort of, instead of getting into all the things we can do with the Iranians, since I assume that's gonna be part of what we'll continue to talk about, I wanna highlight something that tends to explain how much the region has changed, at least as it relates to the Palestinians. I said what the UAE did demonstrated unmistakably they hadn't forgotten the cause of Palestine because after all they said no annexation, but they were signaling unmistakably that their needs came first. Now, the reality here is that they didn't just signal that their needs came first. They signaled something else. They signaled that the traditional fear that the Palestinians could mobilize great passions against anybody who seemed to adopt a position 
that went against Palestinian interests and could destabilize or threaten any such leadership, that fear is gone. One of the indicators, one of the other indicators that is not just that you've had three other uh, Arab states go ahead and follow on the normalization path. You look in August at what was a three-part documentary that Bandar bin Sultan uh, basically ran for three nights on Al Arabiya. And this was the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with high production values, uh, pointing out historically how the Palestinian leadership had consistently missed opportunities. Uh, and this was presented in a way that suggested, look, we bear some responsibility because we always gave them cover. Now, again, think about what this is saying. Again, this is saying the kind of things that he was saying in public, I have to tell you were the kind of things I was always hearing in private before, but no one would say in public. So the fact that there's a readiness to say this in public speaks volumes about the reality that the fear of, of the ability to manipulate the cause of Palestine against leaderships, that fear has clearly diminished. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that they still give at least lip service to the idea of no annexation. But are they, in a sense, losing their leverage to do so because of the normalization without any apparent consequence, such that Israel's calculation is, you know, we'll put that in the bag and we'll keep doing what we want to do because they have just shown their cards. They have shown that their interests matter more than pressing us on the Palestinians. Obviously, that's the major Palestinian fear. That's why they condemned the, uh, the UAE and then got no traction in response to their condemnations. But the answer to your question, I think, is, not necessarily, and I'll explain why. In the case of what the UAE did, it was they did create a relationship between their readiness to normalize with the Israelis not taking a step towards the Palestinians. Now, other Arab states, like the Saudis, can, can follow the path. And when I say the path, what I mean by that is the Saudis are not going to move towards normalization in one leap. They'll do it in phases, just like the UAE did. Now, each step or phase that they take can be, in a sense, something in which they convey to the Israelis. Now, it could be, I would like to see the U.S. play this kind of brokering role, because I think it's a natural for us. And the truth is, when the UAE made this move, they didn't go to the Israelis. They came to the Trump administration and said, win, win, win. Same thing I can imagine with the Saudis, saying, look, we're prepared to take the following kind of step, but here's what we'd like to see the Israelis do towards the Palestinians. Now, that can be a positive move towards the Palestinians, not a negative one. And the fact, as I said, that 80% of the Israeli public supported normalization over annexation, what if the Saudi position, I could give you a whole series of examples, but let me just give you one. What if the Saudi said, we're ready to open a trade office? What we want in return for that is no building outside of the settlement blocks. You know, the concept of settlement blocks and swaps is something I helped to create back in the year 2000. And the whole concept uh, was basically Israel absorbs maybe five or six percent of the West Bank closest to the Green Line, and then there's a territorial compensation for that. So if you're building within the settlement block areas, that's consistent with a two-state outcome. Right. If you're building outside the block areas, that's not. So what if the Saudi position was, okay, we'll offer you a trade office, but this is what we'd like to see, stop building outside the settlement blocks. Here again, I think if the choice for the Israeli public is presented in effect the way it does with, it was with the UAE and it would be here again, that means actually there is the ability, I think, to move the Israelis. Now, if, if in fact, there's just going to be a pursuit of normalization without anything that is for the Palestinians, 
here again, I would say the Palestinians have something to do with that. Mm-hmm. Palestinians convey a message that's a, a negative message over doing anything with the Israelis. Others are going to say, we're no longer prepared to deny ourselves what's in our interest because you seem incapable of doing anything on your own. So the Palestinians also have to be willing to play as part of this. And if they do, the irony is they can actually build the leverage that Arab states have as they move on this process, which will go ahead. This is a new part of the landscape. It will continue. Whether the Biden administration chooses to build on it very actively or simply passively, this is part of a new reality in the region. And that gets back to the heart of what you're asking. Right. Given the advance in Iran's cyber capabilities in particular, is there room for cyber capability cooperation in the region, perhaps using Israel's expertise in this area to cooperate with like-minded governments against Iran? Uh, I think there are a couple of points here. First, uh, Iran is one of the great aggressive cyber actors in the world. And in fact, although Russia and China have larger programs, no nation has been so aggressive in conducting so consequential actions against the internet as Iran, period. Iran's actions, uh, its consequences and the costs have been wide-ranging and indeed the first, the first uh, uh, offensive action against the United States by a cyber actor was conducted by, by Iran. Iran is not a, 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 it doesn't have a large program, say, as, as Russia and China, but it can focus this rather narrowly. And the, the level of its sophistication because of what it can buy on the dark web is not inconsequential. There is certainly room for cooperation among the GCC. And indeed, when we look at the formation of a GCC uh, cooperative defensive element, we often think counter missile, but counter cyber is. Uh, feathers nicely into that. And by the way, counter-pandemic would also work very nicely. And working with Israel is the smart play. But the Iranian cyber threat will continue, in large part because the Iranians have faced little consequence for their cyber actions against the United States, as well as regional players, uh, sufficient to deter their leadership from continuing to use this tool. Let me bring together uh, the theme of several questions that are coming in and turn it back to you, Kirsten, which is, From the perspective of the GCC states, Saudi Arabia and the smaller Gulf states, what are their limits of cooperation with Israel in this regard on on cyber or on other issues? And is there a fundamental distinction between the public facing cooperation based on these normalization agreements and diplomatic relations and expanded cooperation behind the scenes that, in a sense, builds on that trust and goodwill that is forming. How far do you think they will be willing to go to work with Israel against the common threat of Iran? I don't think all of the small GCC states, well, Bahrain accepted, but but Kuwait, Oman, they're not as concerned about the common threat of Iran. But what they are concerned about is the economic development of their countries. And they do see that Israel is a great partner for that. And they've witnessed it in Israel's interactions with Europe and with the US and now in the deals that they're signing with the UAE. And in some cases like Oman, they've been working with Israel for years on things like water projects. And Kuwait really is looking to be a cyber hub in the region and would do well to formulate some partnerships with Israel if this is if this is truly a goal they intend to pursue. The problem, as you mentioned, is in somewhat uh, public opinion and in somewhat some of the policies that they stand for. So in Kuwait's case, be with an elected parliament, 
they really do need to worry about public opinion and they're trying to take it you know, very slowly. It's not to say they won't get there, but they've made a policy statement that they will not normalize with Israel until there is a solution for Palestine and they're sticking to their word because they're beholden to, you know, they can't make an autocratic decision to change course in that same way. And Oman as friend to all, being their national mantra, has made a promise also to maintain a position where they will stand by the need for a solution for Palestine before they will agree to normalize. So it's it's not that they are they have an adversarial stance. It's simply that they have longstanding policies that they think standing by will actually help encourage movement and progress on those fronts. So I, I think we can get there, but I but I'm hoping that Israel's desire to see normalization with these countries and understanding that these policy stances are non-negotiable for them and not for for reasons of animosity, but for for, you know, reasons of values and public opinion will seek to then, you know, make some make some moves in the in the way of peace. In terms of Saudi Arabia, what they continue to tell us, the larger states, is that they have two issues. One, King Salman is opposed to normalization prior to, um, you know, again, an uh, Israeli peace solution with the Palestinians. And as long as he is head of state, that's going to be the way it is. And then Mohammed bin Salman has told us as crown prince that he does deal with public opinion. He has a significant concern about right-wing religious interests in his country that seek to radicalize the Saudi population using this as a narrative. So he says, I need to normalize the idea in my own country before I can do normalization. And that's not uh, that's not unexpected. You know, the Emiratis have a population that was really open to the idea. As Ambassador Ross mentioned, we're already making economic deals and working kind of quietly on issues from cyber to health health answers. So, so it wasn't as big of a leap for them. But Saudi really does have more of an internal conservative mass to accommodate than, than some of the other Gulf states. And if you are an autocracy, you can make these decisions much more easily and if you have to deal with an elected set of decision-makers. Right. Dennis, I'll turn this to you, a specific Israeli-Palestinian question. Do you believe that the future heir to Abbas will be more open to negotiate even without a unity agreement with Hamas? Look, I I think the thing to understand is the following. In any succession period, what you see is a competition to see who can be more pure, not who can be more accommodating. So at least in the near term, uh, one has to recognize that you're probably not going to have a, a successor leader or leaders, because I think we're likely to see a collective leadership in the aftermath of, of Abu Mazen. Although while he's 85, he likes to tell people that his father lived to 103. So, you know, he, he may or may not be with us <laughs> for a lot longer. Yeah. But just I think we have to understand you know, no one is going to get ahead in the Palestinian context by looking like they want to be more accommodating or more moderate towards the Israelis. There'll be a competition to see who can be more pure. Now, having said that, there may also be a competition to see who can deliver more of the goods on the ground. The main preoccupation of most Palestinians right now is how do they live? And the desire to improve uh, the quality of their life is a pretty prominent desire right now. Uh, and so uh, if you have a competition where there are those who are saying, right, look, what can we do to deliver more on the ground? What can we do to show that we're dealing with the perception of corruption? You know, that could, in the end, still move us in a more favorable direction. There's a lot of things that can be done in parallel. You know, just because you may not be able to do things directly between the Israelis and the Palestinians, you, 
you might be able to broker parallel steps that begins to improve things. What I was saying earlier, however, precedes that. I still believe that what you can do is you can take with the Saudis. Kirsten is right. There are inhibitions on the Saudi side. Most of the inhibitions, though, relate to what they do in public. They don't relate a whole lot to what is done in private. Uh, and I'm not, when I say this, you know, even before the, the Abraham Accords, there were 500 Israeli companies that were operating in the Gulf. They weren't all operating in the UAE. Uh, so the reality of this subterranean cooperation was already there. And the question is, how do, you, how do you push that? How do you take advantage of it? How do you make it more public? Because then you can, it can create a lever for you. I believe the way to break the stalemate between Israelis and Palestinians is to be able to build on the normalization process where we get Arab states to do outreach towards Israel, but at the same time, you create parallel moves by the Israelis towards the Palestinians and some moves from the Palestinians in response to what you then get the Israelis to do. Right. I'm gonna ask each of you to weigh in just for a minute or two each from your different perspectives and experiences. Starting with you, Norm, if we would have had this conversation for most of the last 10 years, the first and perhaps the dominant topic in the region would have been Syria and the tragedy there. How do you see that longstanding conflict evolving during the coming months and maybe the coming years? I would begin by saying that the Syrian conflict is in many ways an Iran conflict. Uh, the Iranians beginning around 2011 transferred a large number of highly effective personnel. This is public information. They've suffered uh, multiple losses of general staff officers, and they have sustained the Assad regime. And they brought in Afghans, Pakistanis, as well as working with Lebanese Hezbollah. And I think in, if, if, if there's a lesson that comes from this over the last 10 years is the issue is what would have happened differently in Syria had the international community, this isn't just the U.S. job, the international community done something that would have denied Iran freedom of movement in Syria. A similar question could have been how would the world be different if it, the international community had denied Iran freedom of movement in 2003 in Iraq? In each case, we as a community chose to ignore that and there were consequences. And I can tell you that since that time, we have watched Iran's presence in Syria, which continues to this day uh, as sustaining Assad, a man who's used chemical weapons and barrel bombs against his people. And the international community continues to do very little to push Iran out. Kirsten, what's your view of the Syrian conflict uh, from the Gulf perspective or the wider perspective? I think if... If Iran's oil sales are allowed to increase and the economic space is created for them to do so, we're going to see additional um, activity against Israeli interests from Syria. And we're going to see additional Iranian activity in terms of shoring up their hold on the Assad regime, counter to the Russian hold on, you know, in terms of influence. Specifically now, they are, I intend, I, I fully expect for them to take advantage of our transitional period. The U.S. was incredibly engaged on the ground. People didn't see it, but we were very engaged in all of the political negotiations with all parties involved in Syria in the past administration. Everyone didn't have to love the policies, but they were they were highly pursued. So now, while we are in a period of transition, like we would be at any four years with any new team coming in and getting up to speed on where things are left and what the intelligence is, there's going to be this little vacuum for you know momentary vacuum. Doesn't matter how well you knew a portfolio four years ago, you have to get up to speed on where it sits now. Russia knows this, Assad knows this, Iran knows this. 
Turkey knows this, and they are all looking to make sure that they can wedge themselves in and their interests a bit deeper while America's transitioning. And I do think that if that is combined with the space for Iran to afford to up their presence there, for instance, start paying Hezbollah again, which they had to roll back some of their payments to them in, in Syria previously in around 2018, if they can afford that again, you're going to see greater threats to Israel emanating from Syria, and you're going to see them competing more sincerely with Russia for influence on the Assad regime. Yeah. Dennis, let me turn to you on this one, but with an additional spin, which is that uh, Michael Morell, former senior fellow here at the Hayden Center, years ago, he characterized Syria as perhaps the stickiest, most difficult conflict he'd seen in his career because of the overlap of so many different issues, the Iran issue, the Russia issue, the Turkey issue, the Kurds issue, the Arab-Israeli issue, climate change, just about everything was overlapping in Syria with many of them pointing in opposite directions for action or resolution, such as you know, stopping uh, Iranians from coming into Syria would help on one front, but how would it interact with all the others? So you've dealt with these kind of interacting factors for decades with Syria in particular, how do you see it evolving, given the fact that there are so many dynamics at play? You know, when uh, Samantha Power wrote her book about the Balkans and said it was a problem from hell, well, actually, it looks pale in comparison uh, to what we've seen in Syria. Yeah. And partly it's because it's not just because of the horrendous price that's been paid, the horrendous human toll that has, that has been paid. It's that you have all these different conflicting actors. One thing that we've seen when the US doesn't play an active role and there's a vacuum, others are gonna go in and, and are gonna fill that vacuum. We've seen that in Syria. Now it's not so easy for us to undo it. We have limited leverage at this point. I mean, for years I've heard that, you know, the, the Russians are gonna walk away from Mossad. And I've always said, Norm will like this. I've always said, just give me the evidence. You know, don't tell me about what you think. Just give me the evidence. I don't see any evidence they're going to do that. I've seen the same thing that the, the Russian and Iranian interests are in competition there. Well, at a certain level, they are, but they all both want us out. Uh, and the convergence of their interests so far has tended to trump their whatever strategic long-term interests may be in conflict. So our problem at this point is we don't have a lot of leverage. I would not want to see us leave you know, the small presence we have in Syria, I think we need to maintain it and try to use it as a lever to try to get something. But I don't think we should have any illusion. And I think it gets back, and in some ways, your question gets back to what Norm was raising, which is, well, how does this relate to the larger conflicts in the region? Uh, and to the extent that, that Iran is, anyone who thinks the Iranians are going to withdraw from Syria, they're smoking something. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I know they're smoking something. They have invested very heavily in Syria. It is, their, it is their conduit to Lebanon and Hezbollah, which is the one place where they feel they have successfully exported uh, their revolution. Uh, so there's no way they're, they're giving this up, but we can raise the cost to them. And by the way, one of the ways to deal with the Iranians in the region, it gets back to uh, the very beginning part of the conversation is, show we are prepared to compete. We can talk about sanctions at one level, but we also have to show we are prepared to compete. Well, one way you signal you're ready to compete, make it clear very publicly, not quietly, we support what the Israelis are doing. By my count, the Israelis have hit about 1,200 targets uh, in Syria. And if, and if you listen to what Kirsten was saying, 
Iranians are probably inclined to do more, but the Israelis can make them pay a high price for doing it. Uh, we should, it should be very clear. You keep acting there, we will support what the Israelis are doing. So look for the opportunities to build our leverage. The, the idea that we can quickly turn this into a political process, a lot depends upon, you know, and here again gets you into different kinds of complications. If we had a certain kind of relationship with Turkey, which is difficult given where Erdogan is, that could be used against the Russians, or it could be used to build Russian interests, to change their behavior somewhat. We have to be thinking, what are the possible points of leverage we have and how can we build on those? I wouldn't exaggerate how much we have in Syria, but I would say, keep the small presence that we have, back what the Israelis are doing, talk to the Russians, and see you know, what they're thinking and also how you might affect their thinking. The one risk that I would say, the more the Iranians keep pushing the precision guided project, uh, the more the Israelis are gonna do. The one thing the Russians don't want is to be caught in the middle of a war. So to the extent to which that's a fear that we can, you can't conjure up, they have to see that it's real, but we can take advantage of it. Yeah. So each of these points, it gives us possible leverage that's how you think about how you take advantage of possible diplomatic openings. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the podcast and rate the podcast wherever you found it. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pachahowell. A special thanks to the folks at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University and the Michael V. Hayden Center for Intelligence, Policy, and International Security for the audio of this virtual event. Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.